Uh, some of you I do know, some of you I don't. Uh, I'm Zach, Spencer shared. I am a house church leader here as well as on the prayer team. I'm often at actually that corner, usually Sunday morning. Uh, my biggest claim to fame is my family. I'm Paola's husband. I am Isa and Lily's dad. That's usually my name around here. Uh, the, you know, but that, you know, that's good. They're worth being in the shadow of. We're expecting baby number three. Uh, any moment, not, the, not right now, please. <laughs> Dr. D's been praying over us, and we're like, whoo! <laughs> please be at a later date than right now. Uh, Olivia Anya, if you didn't know her name. Uh, we don't have social media, so this is how we give out life updates. One of us will preach, and we'll share about our life. So thank you, Emmaus, for the opportunity to share our social media updates. Um, I do want to thank Spencer and team, because uh, there's a lot of people involved with everything here at Emmaus, uh, but especially like the preaching and the, the vision and the mission of what we do. Uh, there is a very handy piece of paper called the roadmap out there, and I just really love it. It's pocket size or Bible size, and it is a handy way of taking notes and knowing what is coming next. So I just really wanted to uh, acknowledge the hard work that goes into our creative side of things here at Emmaus, because it really is a life-giving thing. Um, and this is the second week in a series on Matthew, if you're new, if this is your first time or you're visiting. Uh, you came, you just missed number one, so you can get caught up online. No big deal, you can come back in and uh, you know go out and listen, and then come back after you're done. Um, and we are gonna be going through uh, Matthew 1.18 through 2.23 this morning. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You mentioned expositing. That's how I grew up. Uh, that is literally when, you know, you go verse by verse, which is just a different flavor of preaching. That's how I grew up. That's how in college, that's usually how I learned. I'm not going to do that. We're going to go more of an overview this morning. So we're going to hit some key verses, uh, and we're going to go at it in an overview fashion. It's more like going over the country in a plane rather than a cross-country journey, so to speak. Um, so I'm going to read out of uh, 2, chapter 2, if you'd like to join. Matthew 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. This is the word of the Lord. So, first, as we begin, a question for you. Our title this morning is Origin, Origin Story. So what is an origin story? What pops in your brain when I ask you that? What comes to mind? I'm a bit of a nerd. So for me, I'm going to start with coffee. With a lovely picture here. Coffee, that's uh, Salento, California. Uh, California now. <laughs> Columbia. Uh, one of the first places that I visited when I went to Columbia with Pal. And coffee is a fun thing because the origin story of coffee, so supposedly, is there was a farmer or a herdsman, a shepherd, and his goats got into coffee beans and started dancing around. And so you'll see coffee shops named like Dancing Goat Coffee, uh, and that's what that is. That's referring to this legend of the origin of coffee. 
or another one. With great power comes, there we go, Spider-Man comes from my least favorite animal in the animal kingdom, <laughs> terrified of spiders. That's okay, I love Spider-Man, he's one of my favorite ones. He was formed into who he was, his origin story, because a selfish act on his part led to the death of his uncle, and that pivoted his life to serve and live for others rather than for himself. We're getting into spoilers here, if you didn't know Spider-Man's origin stories. <laughs> Another spoiler for you, my favorite, is Darth Vader. Luke, I am your father. My buddy just watched that with his kids, and their minds were blown when that moment came. The origins of Darth Vader are a, tree, um, a trio of movies called Episodes 1, 2, 3. And they follow the tragic rise, fall, and redemption, as you get into the later arcs, of Darth Vader that all started with just a simple poor boy in the desert who wanted to protect the ones closest to him that he loved, and in doing so, basically lost everything. Or, a little closer home for me, my wife. This is her family. This is my in-laws. Christmas, birthday party, had an Encanto birthday party. It's a great time. Uh, these are her mom and dad's families. They are the people who made her into who she was when I met her at college. She came from this space. That's her origin in Colombia. So what is an origin story? Merriam-Webster defines origin as uh, ancestry, or parentage, rise beginning uh, from a source. So it's basically, where do you come from? There's a lot of things around the words origin. Family origins can have a really positive or negative feeling for you, maybe, if I say that. Where do you come from? Your city? Your country? Some of you are from different countries here. Some of you moved to Greensboro from different cities. Some of you, like me, grew up on Kibbe Drive. <laughs> Back in the county. Yeah, those are my neighbors. <coughs> Just out of where you live. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I've given you some context for me earlier, but I really didn't tell you my origin. I told you my family and maybe why you, how you might know me. You might watch my kids and Emmaus kids. Shout out to Emmaus kids. Um, but I grew up here in Greensboro. I went to that mall over there all summer. FYE and Hot Topic and Fourth Seasons Food Court. Um, I then moved to go to a Bible college in Iowa. And then eventually the Lord led me to move back here with my wife. So that's some origin for you, but it still is missing a lot of details. So you, now you have kind of an origin for me, but just in a technical sense. You know my whole life arc and my whole life story, so to speak, but I really didn't dive into a lot of the nitty-gritty details. I could, I could tell you other key things, like I was homeschooled, which explains a lot. Um, I could tell you I grew up hunting. Some of you are judging me. It's okay. I never visited another country or even really truly traveled outside the United States until after college when I met my wife. I went to Columbia. I love reading because my mom loved reading and showed me how to love reading by doing it. All these things are facts that 
as I was sharing them, your perspective started to shift about who I was. You started to see me in, in different lights. Puzzle pieces started forming. A more whole piece of the puzzle was coming together. Now, none of those things, whether they were or weren't shared, change who I am per se. But they change your understanding, your knowledge of me, based on what details I share with you. It's important to understand a person's origin if you want to truly, deeply understand them. So when I was dating Powell, until I went and visited Columbia, there was a big gap in knowing her. As we're in college, and I'm interacting with her as RAs, and I'm getting to know her, and where, you know, all the feelings are there, there's this knowledge that until I go to her country, Something's missing. She told me when we were dating that she feels like a big part of who she is she can't fully express here. It's not in her mother tongue, not in her mother language, it's not in her mother culture. So she is not able to share fully with an American exactly who she is. And that's still true to this day. And even in reverse now that she's lived here for 10 plus years, there's parts of herself that she can't share at home the same way. That her family won't fully understand because it's an American change that has kind of, she's ingrained some things into herself. She'll always hit some level of bumps of foreignness or be unable to express her full self. But it is still important for me to go and visit my in-laws, visit her family, and understand her point of origin. Because if I want to have a marriage that is thriving, I should seek to understand my wife and what is inside of her and making her tick and how she's thinking and processing things. We might have an experience and see the same things, but she reacts completely different because of something else that I haven't fully grasped yet. It's important. It's not good enough just to know tiny little details if you really want to deeply have a relationship with someone. It's like knowing a famous person. You might know details about that person, but you don't know them. You don't know them on an intimate level. <clears throat> and the biggest thing is with that is if you seek to have a committed relationship to someone, there should be a desire there to dig deeper. So that leads us to Jesus. Why is it important to understand Jesus' origins? And it's the same reason. If we are wanting, like what was shared this morning, to live into a committed rhythm rule of life, following the way of Jesus, it's not good enough just to read a book that he wrote and say, okay, I got, I got the, the facts. I'm going to pick out and choose some of the philosophies that he had. It's a commitment to knowing him and to following him, to shaping our lives around the ethos of who he is as Jesus, as God, as friend. Appreciate that, John. That lead up of knowing and being known by Jesus. So what is his origin? What's his origin story? Now, passage that we're speaking on is a very familiar one. Even non-followers of Jesus probably know the Christmas story. 
It's a pretty common thing in this particular culture. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. Even in non-appropriate times, people will listen to Christmas music. <laughs> Strong feelings on some camps about that. But there's two different perspectives here in the passages that we're going to be reading. And I want to highlight a heavenly and an earthly perspective, or a divine and a human, prophetic and human. There's a prophetic thread that Matthew, as a Jewish person, is pulling from as he's writing this narrative story for us from the Old Testament. He's bringing out Jesus as Messiah, which is from David's line. King David, as we heard from Spencer last week, um, preaching on that, the, the line of David continuing on, and Jesus being a new Genesis, a new beginning. There is the new Moses. So Jesus is fulfilling the law. His name actually in Hebrew is Joshua, which was the right-hand man to Moses. I don't think that was accidental. That, that was his name. He is a fulfillment of the law that allows us to have communion with God. And lastly, as Emmanuel, which is a big part of what we're going to be talking about today. God with us is what Emmanuel means. Matthew is building a story. He's crafting. He's shaping a story here. And this is the introduction, chapters 1 through 3. The Bible Project has an amazing overview video if you care to dig deep into some of those uh, more academic and studious sides of things. I would really encourage you to check out. Um, and Matthew is showing exactly how much Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is stepping into and fulfilling, sometimes before he's born. And in our section alone, he says five separate times, this happened to fulfill this prophecy in some form or fashion. Prophecy is a major part of Matthew and the fulfillments of Jesus within that. So that's an overview of the heavenly side of things. God's divine pulling of threads connecting from Genesis to Revelation, into our story today as he is using us in his narrative kingdom building. But what about like his mom, his dad, his friends, his step brothers and sisters? What about the humans that grew up around him? What would they view Jesus' origin stories like? Because they're not getting that same perspective that God and Jesus had as the Trinity is deciding to implement this plan. So from an earthly and heavenly side, we've got one 18 through 25. It's kind of a first story here for us today. I'm going to read just a couple verses to highlight something. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. One person I was reading highlights how Mary is very front and center in Luke's gospel account of the nativity. And in Matthew, Joseph is quite front and center. The obedience and the submissiveness of Joseph. Uh, David Benner who has written some wonderful things that have impacted my life, said that submissive openness to God's will is every bit as, uh, his, sorry, his submissive openness to God's will is every bit as astounding as Mary's. Joseph was attentive to God, open to God. Joseph lived a life of consent to God's will. 
He was willing to put God's plan ahead of his own. Because this was a big deal. God came to Joseph and said, your fiance, who you have not married yet, is going to have a kid. And it's okay. Which in that day, that, day, that day and age, it was even more not okay what was happening. Let alone just some of the emotions that Joseph was probably feeling. His firstborn son and his family is not going to share his blood. Blood is a big deal in this story. It's important where you come from. You inherit things, maybe a business, maybe land. We we're talking in house church today in Acts, uh, sorry, not today, this week. And the believers were selling off property that probably was inherited land to live together. It's a big deal to not be in the blood relationships. But this is Jesus' human father. His role model as he is 1, 2, 3, 13 years old. From inside the family, I imagine it wasn't so bad because it seems Joseph was a good man. Both him and Mary were submissive to God's will. I'm sure there was so much love happening at a core level in Jesus' family. But it was definitely used against him publicly many times in the Gospels of you're not really Joseph's father. I mean, sorry, you're his son. It was thrown in his face, and I doubt the few glimpses that we get were the only times. Kids are not very kind sometimes. Your political enemies, the Pharisees versus Jesus, aren't always going to dig deep. And that was an easy grab. Yeah, you don't even have a dad. Uh, how can you be talking about God's stuff? We don't even know where you come from, Jesus. But Joseph was obedient. So despite complicated feelings I'm sure he was having from confusing news, I mean, he's going to have a son, so he's probably overjoyed, but at the same time confused and a little bit worried, maybe intimidated. God is giving him a son, and he's got to be the stepdad to the son of God? That's, in, that's a big, big pressure. So that's Joseph. That's his dad, his human dad. Then we go to the next section, which we read uh, a little bit. Magi from the east and King Herod. We're in the um, epiphany season, ending this week with Ash Wednesday going into Lent. And this season is highlighted around the Magi, just highlighting their involvement in the narrative story. Uh, and in this particular season, we take time to recognize their part that they play. And they did play a huge part. They played a part in highlighting to the king that somebody revolutionary was born, which is not great for Jesus. If I was going to be born and become king of something, I'd rather not have someone accidentally spilling the beans to the person who would hate me the most. Whoops. But their actions stemmed from a massive faith. Because they were believing that whatever signs they were seeing, there's a lot of really interesting commentary around what could, it, what could that star even have been? And how were they interpreting different signs? And that day and age, interpretation of signs in the heavens was believed to almost always have correlation here on earth. And so they were seeing something and they said, 
well, we know this, this, and this, and then in the Hebrew stuff, we know this. So I think there's a king born. And they don't just say, that's cool. They go across probably a desert. They must have been wealthy, and they had, t- they had the means and the time to go and check it out. And they show up to the most logical person, the most important person in the land, and he also has faith that this happened, interestingly enough. He goes to his people and he says, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Because this is not great. So he believed them. It wasn't that he was like, you guys are crazy. I'm the king. He was threatened in this story. He had, uh, historically, we know that he has intense paranoia. He has no qualms about murdering family members or anybody that would have a hint at threatening him. And at the very least, even if this was a, like, I'm not sure, his just-in-case plan was to murder a village. Even if he wasn't 100% on board that the Messiah was born, he said, better safe than sorry, I'll kill this whole village. No big deal. I've got tons of other ones. So that throws us into the next story. As we see Matthew drawing us into already a very tumultuous beginning for Jesus, stemming as a a revolutionary, a kingdom-shaking, perspective-changing person that is coming, a prophetic look into his beginnings, he's forced to flee at a young age. He was probably a little older than a baby. He was two, three, maybe when the Magi got there. I'm not sure exactly his age. But he was old enough that when they had to flee in this next section, in chapter 2, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. So another call to the Exodus and Moses narrative that is happening across the human timeline across Israel's timeline. He is forced to flee from a young age, does not understand a thing. My daughter, Issa, is three. She's very intelligent, and she sometimes corrects me on things. However, she is still three, and she does not understand everything sometimes. One of her most common statements to us when she is confused and we are giving her instruction is, I just don't understand And sometimes it's cute, sometimes it's immensely frustrating. (laughs) Um, But either way, it's her trying to express that I just don't get it. Why can't I do this? Or why do I have to do it in this order? I just want to color. I don't want to eat eggs, even though we have to leave for Amaze Kids. You don't have time to color, sweetie. Color at Amaze Kids and eat those crayons. So he's leaving with his family, and he becomes a refugee and a foreigner. In Egypt, nonetheless. Somewhere that 
has a very rocky relationship with Israel. It's not my first choice that I would want to flee to, the place that used to enslave us. But he does, because of a dream and an angel that spoke to his dad. In doing this, he becomes what is called a third culture kid. A third culture kid is someone who has lived into another culture and is not fully one or the other. So my kids are third culture kids. They are fully Colombian and fully American. But they're also not really one or the other fully. It's complicated. And there's, a, there's books written to help parents that are like, your kid is living a different experience than you will ever understand. And there's an element that they will neither fit in fully in America, and they will neither fit in fully in Colombia. No matter where they go, there's always going to be this question of, who am I? They have us as a family to pull from, but the, the, the space, the culture, is a little more complicated. And so Jesus is stepping into this at a young age. I work for War Relief Triad, resettling refugees. Uh, I find houses for them, and I'm part of a really amazing team. And the trauma that comes from our clients that they experienced in coming to the States is very different than an immigrant who moves in on purpose. An immigrant who chooses to come usually has a goal. They might have massive dreams. Like, I just got a job. I've wanted to move here my whole life. But a refugee is fleeing. They didn't necessarily want to come. They're fleeing for a persecuted reason across the, the spectrum. Persecution across many spectrums. But there is some reason that if they stayed in their country, they might die. And so they flee. They go to basically a global network with the UN, and they say, I am seeking help. And they get put usually in a refugee camp. The average wait time in that camp is about 10 years before they are resettled somewhere that can be their new home country. So imagine the journey that Jesus is making of leaving his family and friends, a long journey down, regardless of how long or short the actual journey was, they didn't have cars, they didn't have planes. So they're going on foot, on camel, on donkey, on something. To a country that speaks a different language, that has a different culture. There's a scene in The Chosen where they, took a, they had a creative imagination moment and Jesus encounters someone from Egypt and he speaks to them. And I was like, Oh my goodness, yes. He might have been able to do that. He grew up there for a period of time. That is so cool that that could have been something that he could have been able to do. So is it in the gospel? No, but he grew up in Egypt. And he didn't choose to. The trauma that comes from having to flee usually comes with some questions of value, of stability. A lot of scarcity mentality because everything could be taken away from you at a moment's notice. And then you go back and your stuff 
your life, your family, your friends may or may not be there if you ever get to go back. It's a tough, tough position to be in. And that's the reality that Jesus stepped into and was forced into because of a king. As we see these three sections, there are two things that commonly run through them that are really cool. We've mentioned the prophecy in the Old Testament tie-ins. Matthew drawing us our attention to this was done to fulfill this. He's, he really lays it out. It's, it's, <laughs> you have to miss it on purpose if you're trying to. The other one that's really cool is signs and wonders, dreams, also the stars, but dreams. Every section has a dream. Every section has a prophecy. And there's five in each. Or sorry, five across our, our space. Five dreams and five moments of prophecy, which is really, really cool. The dream aspect is fun because it is very experiential. And you also have to step out in faith. The prophecy aspect is fun because it is concrete in a sense of it's written down. It's not so experiential. Maybe an academic would have more interest in that. But it also takes faith. Because you can just read it and it's just a cool thing that Hosea read, wrote. But to actually believe that someone's going to live into that takes faith. It's like a referral from a trusted source. If I'm going to apply for a job and Spencer gives me a good word and they know Spencer, that's a step up for me that this is who this person is. And Matthew is leaning into that and crafting his narrative of like, hey, Jesus, Hosea, Isaiah, all these people that you know and love, they're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He's finally here. Matthew has 28 chapters, and the first three, which we're going through these weeks, are origin and set up why we should listen to his teachings. The rest of the gospel is pretty much Jesus' teachings. So he takes time in the first three chapters to say, let's give you some foundation of trust. They're a prologue to the launching of a kingdom mission in Jesus so why this focus? Why focus on these three stories? Because like we were sharing before, I can share my origin and I share different things and there's still tons you don't know about me. But I shared enough that you can start gathering a picture. So why these three? Why does Matthew want to write a narrative that reveals this? And I think it's because he focuses on God with us as one. And he's directing our attention to where he wants it to go. The Bible Project highlights that one of the, in one of their videos that Matthew opens with Emmanuel, which means God with us, and ends at the very end, this is so cool, with Jesus saying, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Living into his name as he is fulfilling that end story. The whole theme of Matthew is a present, constant, consistent Messiah King bringing a kingdom of peace. So don't miss this. It's a key thing. God is with them, Emmanuel. God is with us, Emmanuel. And God is with you, Emmanuel. So what does this mean for us? There's a lot of good context for what is about to come in Jesus' teachings, a little bit more of his story, his beginnings with John the Baptist. 
But in this moment, what is Emmanuel, God with us, in this end of Epiphany season, of reflecting on what just happened with Christmas? What does it mean for us? How do we relate to God? Or do you even feel like God is relatable? Has he been in the past? Is he now? Maybe it's changed for you. Do you feel like he's with you? You might not at the moment. Feelings are very valid things. And often in the Christian circles, they can get discounted sometimes. Like, oh, you, you know, we need to stick to concrete facts on theology. But there is an experiential level that happens in spirituality. But they have to be rooted on truth. Because you can feel something deeply, and that is completely valid, but if you don't center back to the truth of who God is, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Hebrews says, you might feel abandoned and walk away too. Because your feelings are saying, he left you, so forget him. And that just might not be true. Even though in the moment you might not be experiencing him the same way that you did that one time. You remember that one time when we were at camp, when I was at church, my old church, when I was at my old group of friends, before I moved back in my home country, back in my home language. Man, God was so close. He was so close. And now, I don't know. I mean, I know he's there. You know, the Bible, but just don't feel it. He's the same Jesus who promised to always be present. He came down to embody, to live into a body and embody a life among us. To be Emmanuel, God with us. He chose, the Trinity decided this was the game plan, a less than ideal start to life. He was conceived out of wedlock in a virgin birth. Sure, that's spectacular and awesome on a spiritual level. Praise the Lord. Still out of wedlock. Still complicated, humanly speaking. A stranger who meets him on the road and hears that's your stepdad is going to wonder, oh, interesting, what's your story? Oh, you don't even, okay. A lot of confusion in sharing your birth story. Comes from a carpenter's stepdad. Hard working class family. Could have been born into Herod's palace. Could have been born Herod's son. Wouldn't have complicated things as much. Well, maybe it would have actually. Herod probably would have still killed him. That's okay. He came from, as we saw with the genealogy, a lot of dysfunction and brokenness. There's some things in there that are like, so-and-so married so-and-so. Somebody didn't marry her. This family was this. This happened then. This person was good. Throw that away. His family of origin was not clean and perfect and a, a pedigree that is just like immaculate. I saw a quote from Mark Twain when I was prepping that talks about genealogies. And he was like, why do you bother putting money into finding out who your family tree is? Just go into politics. Your enemies will do it for you. I thought that was funny. Not enough to share on the screen, but I thought it was funny. There are known prophecies about him. 
he had prophecies being fulfilled before he was even born. And then as he was born, he had prophecies being fulfilled that put a price on his head and threatened his life. Someone hated the idea. They didn't know him. The idea of him being alive so much, they killed an entire town. So, sorry, not an entire town. The children of an entire town at a certain age. Ruining families' lives. Disrupting so many families. I don't know how I would feel about the Messiah if soldiers came in and killed Isabella. I would have some questions for God. If the Messiah was supposedly such a great person, how come my son had to die? It doesn't make any sense. He was forced to flee. He lived as a stranger, a foreigner, and a refugee in a cross-cultural life in a land that historically had a troubled, complicated past with his people group. God didn't just come down. He chose to come down into a normal life. We talk about normal life, and usually we mean happy things. But almost everybody I know has major suffering that has happened or is happening at some point in their life, and that is a normal human experience. Joy and struggle. He came into a life filled with a complicated family, economic instability, and a lack of a home. We have to know where Jesus comes from and not get lost in the, the beautiful picturesque nativity scenes that we see. They can be amazing teaching tools. They can be even prayer items, having them in front of you and remembering the birth. There is amazing beauty. I know I have, I have shared a lot of the tougher things about Jesus' life, but there is so much beauty in how Jesus was born. The faith of his mother to say that she would be God's servant. The faith of his father to trust that this was true and to raise his son to be a godly Hebrew boy who would love being in the temple so much that he would go spend time with teachers. But he's not a Hallmark Christmas movie. He is a real human, fully God, fully man, with real problems that he came into on purpose with a divine plan in order to be with you, with humanity. N.T. Wright says in his commentary on Matthew, listen to the whole story that Matthew is saying. Think about what it meant for Jesus to be the true king of the Jews and then come to him by whatever route you can. Jesus is really God. He was also, he is also really man, really human. We're ending a, a season in the church calendar called Epiphany, and we're going into Lent. It's looking at a book that was highlighting Lent and said a time of renewal and repentance. A time to know Jesus on a different level than the Epiphany, than the Christmas season. A time to be renewed by someone like John was sharing up here as the worship team. Thank you, worship team, for all y'all do. Is someone that wants to know you, wants to be your friend, your master, your savior, 
wants you to know him. He doesn't leave us in our brokenness. He doesn't ask us to fix ourselves first before we show up. He does ask for repentance and commitment. But you don't have to become perfect and then show up to get saved. He is an embodied, present, living God through the Holy Spirit who is with us. He calls us to follow him, which is a high calling. It's a high cost. He comes into covenant with us. Commitment. There's not many times in our day and age where covenant gets used. The marriage covenant is one of them. And while it's held at varying degrees by society, it is a vow to live and commune with another person exclusively. And Jesus calls us into a follow me exclusively. Surrender and trust to him is crucial for that to happen. It's a reorienting of our entire life into a rhythm that sees him at the center. Not just for a a teacher, which he was. Not just for a safety net out of hell. But for peace. He doesn't just teach us and guide us and love us just so we have the highest level of education or know the most stuff about how to live a good life. But so that we can have peace in troubled times. We can have a deep joy in happy times. I was recently describing to someone some tough things that we were having to wrestle through. And I said, emotionally, I got a lot of happy sad going on. The surface level emotions. Those are always changing, going up and down. But the deep-seated emotions for me in that particular choice was peace and joy. And that's what Christ is offering is saying, put me at your foundation so that no matter what's happening, because you're going to have sad. That's what most people wrestle with. Why am I so unhappy, God? And he says, let's talk about that. But you got to try. You got to come and talk to me. You got to be in communion. You've got to commit and follow me. part of a story that stretches back so far beyond us. And that could feel overwhelming, but it should feel comforting that you don't have to be the center of the universe. You don't have to create your own value because God has given you value by creating you. You don't have to figure out exactly every part of your life You have someone who loves you and created you. It's a story that's so big, it pulls from Genesis and creation of God with humanity in the garden to Jesus walking with the disciples in his human form and to us with the Holy Spirit with in us every day. We are part of a larger story that is exciting I loved the energy that came from the worship time this morning because it is exciting. It is exciting to have a family 
a peace, a joy, a space, and a creator. It's not just about you and it's not just about me. We don't have a bunch of individual little kingdoms. We can be a part of the kingdom that Jesus is setting up. We welcome Jesus as a real savior who loves us here on earth in our humanity and is with us in our joys and struggles. He doesn't shy away from that. He grew up with it as a three-year-old, as a 13-year-old, as a 30-year-old man having things thrown in his face. He wants your honest life, your true self, so that he can purify, sanctify, and cherish you. You're not just a project for him. You are a person that he created and loves. Go read Psalm 139 if you want to see God's depth of love for you from the womb. You're made in God's image. You're an image bearer of God. And Jesus, Emmanuel, is someone worth being with as you walk through this broken, hard life towards eternity. Let's pray.